We'll come to part three in our studies on Christian baptism. In part one, we looked at baptism as a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. Part two, we looked at the different modes of baptism. We looked at dipping, dipping which is immersion, pouring, which is effusion, sprinkling, which is aspersion. And I believe they're all legitimate modes of baptism. And then part three today, we come to the subjects of baptism. And I don't want anyone to take out of context what I said today and don't divorce it from part one and part two. So before you pass comment on part three, make sure you've listened part one and part two. We haven't put it up yet on sermon audio because I didn't want it to be put up piecemeal. Uh, I want it to be put up all together and you have to listen to it in the context. We know as we've considered in our own articles of faith, 6a, that liberty of conscience is embedded into the mode of baptism. But it's also embedded into what we call the proper subjects of baptism. And we know the great men of God in bygone generations have disagreed upon this matter. And I will not be offended or I will not be surprised if you disagree with some of my conclusions today either. But in order to avoid division over baptism... The Free Presbyterian founders, many years ago, they decided, as the article number six states, to give each member liberty to decide for himself, herself, which course to adopt on these controverted issues. Each member giving due honour and love to the views held by differing brethren, but none espousing the error of baptismal regeneration. Now, just stop there for a moment or two. It tells us each member giving due honour. Sometimes it's hard to honour people that disagree with you. That's the challenge of this 6A. In love to the views held by differing brethren. Oftentimes I have found that the views of differing brethren are just dispensed with. As if their views don't even count. I don't want that to be the case in on alone, nor should it be the case in any of our other sister congregations. The last phrase is important to note. <coughs> None espousing the error of baptismal regeneration. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, describes a infant baptism as the labor of regeneration. <coughs> so without the baptizing of the infant child, the child is not regenerated. Well, let me tell you again, stating from this pulpit categorically, that there's no amount of water, either that you're put under or put on the head or put on you as an infant or applied to you as an adult that can never regenerate your soul. It's an impossibility. Our own confession is very clear. Chapter 28, section 5. It says... Although it is a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as no person can be generated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. So, although we do not say that this ordinance should be neglected, we'll come to that just in a moment or two, Yet it is not necessary for salvation. 
You're not saved because you're baptized. You're not regenerated because you're baptized. And if you're here in the meeting today, unconverted and still out of Christ, it is Christ you need. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life you need. It's the knowledge of sins forgiven and pardon and peace with God is the great uh, requisite for you today. Now, within free Presbyterianism, whilst we think of this liberty of conscience amongst its ministers and uh, ultimately amongst its members concerning uh, the mode and the proper subjects of Christian baptism, it's not surprising, therefore, that there are credo-baptists in our midst and that there are pedo-baptists in our midst. And I think, because this is an unessential to salvation, sometimes I think it's not explained or it's not detailed as it ought to be. Credo-baptism is the view that you're baptised just upon profession of faith. Pedo-baptism is the view that the infants of believing parents or parent within the professing visible church can be baptised. Now again, that's an important qualifying phrase. Not all infants are to be baptised. We don't believe just in bringing the child to the church to get the child done, in verdict comes. It's only the infants of believing parents or a parent who is a Christian. So that will dispense with an awful lot of infants, won't it? And will disqualify them from being baptised. The debate is well articulated in the North American a publication of the Free Presbyterian Church in North America. That little booklet, if you can get it, it's an excellent little booklet, separated onto the gospel. And they put it like this. Historically, <clears throat> the Reformed churches, along with the Lutheran, Episcopal, Congregational, and Methodist churches, have accepted that pouring, sprinkling, and dipping are all valid modes of baptism. They have also believed that baptism is the sign and seal of God's covenant with his people and that it should be administered to all who are in that covenant. And they argue that the infant children of believers are included in the covenant and that therefore baptism should be administered to them. The counterpart to that, of course, is against this view, Baptists and Anabaptists have argued that baptism must be Follow a personal profession of faith. It cannot legitimately be administered to children who have made no such personal profession. The New Testament nowhere commands or mentions the baptism of infants. The only baptism it knows is believers' baptism. We'll come to those arguments just in a little moment. So Article 6a really has honed it down to this. That the controversy of baptism focuses in on the mode and now today the proper subjects of baptism. Now from our previous study we have considered the modes of baptism. And I think all of those modes that we've listed to you, dipping or immersionism, pouring or sprinkling, to me they're all legitimate modes of baptism. In, con in, in contrast, of course, Baptists only accept immersion as a mode of baptism. They believe that the very fundamental aspect of baptism is linked 
uh, in that symbolism of being buried and risen again with Christ in the water tank. But in fairness, I have to go back to what I said a few weeks ago. Uh, and in balance, I believe that purification is the essential symbolism of baptism. And that can be sprinkled, can be symbolized by sprinkling, pouring, as well as by dipping. So today the proper subject of baptism brings us, I think, to the heart of the subject. There are many creedal Baptists. Peter Baptists can agree with so much of what has been said already. But when it comes to this one aspect of the proper subjects of baptism, whether the infant or the infants of believing parents or parents ought to be baptized, <coughs> then they depart their company. Baptists hold, of course, that baptism, it's only like a badge of profession, a door to joining the church. But reformed Christians hold it to be much more than that. They hold it to be the sign, the seal of God's covenant that he's made with his people. They believe that those adults outside the professing church, until they come to faith in Christ, should be a until they have come to faith in Christ, should be baptized. It's not fair to say that Peter Baptists don't believe in adult baptism. Of course they do. It's quite wrong to suggest that they don't. It's very interesting if you go through the New Testament, every example of adult baptism in the New Testament that is given is of someone who has been converted outside the professing church. Now that's not surprising because given the missionary nature of the New Testament. So adult baptism is not opposed by uh, reformed churches or those who uh, adhere to Peter baptism. Indeed, it's practiced because they believe it's a command from Scripture itself. The only difference is they do not insist that the adult should be immersed. Reformed Christians teach that the infants of Believing parents should be baptized. Why? Well, that's why we read to you from Genesis chapter 17. And we'll come to it just in a little moment. Because God has included the seed in the covenant as well as the parents in the covenant. We've looked at that verse sometimes in Acts chapter 239. The promise is unto you, Peter said, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now what Peter is emphasizing here in the day of Pentecost, and you can go through that sermon in Acts chapter 2, right throughout the sermon he is emphasizing the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the plan of God's redemption. And so these words were addressed to those who on the day of Pentecost would become Abraham's descendants by faith. Paul in Romans 4 verse 11 and 12 stated that it was God's plan to make Abraham the father of all who believe uh, without circumcision. It's good to go back to our own standards and to consider our own definitions. Let me share some of them with you again in the Shorter Catechism. Question 95 Shorter Catechism, 95-96, represents about 2% of the Shorter Catechism. So I'd say to those of you who are exclusive Credo Baptists, don't throw, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What does it say? 
To whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. And here we come to the final clause. But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. Now I want to challenge you because time will not permit it today. You go home and look up the scripture references that are within the shorter catechism. We'll cover some of them. But the scripture references, scripture proofs are all very significant. Again, the larger catechism, 166, unto whom is baptism to be administered. It says baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church and so strangers from the covenant of promise till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But infants descending from parents, either both are but one of them, professing faith in Christ and obedience to him are in that respect within the covenant and are to be baptized. I'll take you again to the confession. Chapter 28, section 4. Read all of the chapter, please. Chapter 28, as we've been encouraging you to do. Section 4 says, Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So there are five proof texts. And they do deserve your particular study and focus. And we'll come to them. Now we're going to look at both sides of this uh, debate. We're going to look first of all at the Credo Baptist side of it. The hallmark of those who adhere uh, to this uh, particular aspect is that they restrict this ordinance of baptism just to believers. Those that have professed faith in Christ alone. Now at the time of the Reformation we had the Anabaptists. And they, in contrast to the other reformers, held to this particular view. But it's very interesting. History throws up all types of quirks to us. And I've been reading up this in the past few uh, weeks and months. That's why I put up in the little WhatsApp group the archaeology of Christian baptism. And you should read. You should take time to read through it. And you will find that those, some of those early on the Baptists, they practiced baptism not by immersion but by pouring. And some of them, as we have noted, uh, practiced triune baptism. In other words, they, they applied the water three times, or they put the person in and out of the water three times, in the name of the Father and the Son and the, and the Holy Spirit. So their basic argument is only those who are expressly given the right by Scripture may be baptized. So children are not mentioned, therefore they may not be baptized. Now a lot of what we Observe in scripture is deduced or inferred from scripture. So it's quite correct to say that as an absolute correct statement. But it doesn't consider the inferences or what is deduced from scripture as a result. So according to the Credo Baptist, there is nowhere in the New Testament that God directly commands that children of believers should be baptized. Therefore, they should not be baptized. So Credo Baptism basically teaches that the pattern of the New Testament church is faith and repentance, then baptism. <coughs> they, uh, they have the proof text, Acts chapter 2. <coughs> if you go there for just for a moment. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. 
Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 8 verse 12, Acts chapter 10 verse 47, Acts chapter 16 verse 14 and 15 and so forth. So in addition, in addition to this and of course... I remember many years ago, I'm a rare mixture, I was brought up a Presbyterian, I had brethren relations, they were very vociferous and forthright in their views and I had to contend with all of those types of situations and, and my uncle used to especially be strong in this and he would say there's not one example of a child being baptised in the New Testament. I didn't know enough to tell him it doesn't come from the New Testament. It doesn't come from the New Testament. But we'll come to that just in a second. I always like to go on, on a confessional basis. So our own Westminster Confession was published 1647. So the Anabaptists and the Independents amongst the Puritans, they published their own version of the Westminster Confession in 1689. And it's just really a replica of the, our own confession of 1647, 1689, it is, the, it is the, the, the standard doctrinal basis of all Reformed Baptist uh, churches, and it's called the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 29. It says about baptism. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted uh, into him, of remission of sins and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Section 2. Those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. So baptism too, the Credo Baptist, is a symbol of actually being in the Christian faith. And I would encourage you uh, to take down, you can go online, it's all very simply uh, assessed nowadays, the London Baptist Confession, 1689, and that is the basic reformed. I'm not going into the dispensational school, I'm not going into all the other schools, I'll just keep you to the basic confessional school and how it is understood, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So that's the Creed of Baptist site. Let's come to the Credo Baptist, the, the, the Pedo Baptist side. Now this takes a little longer because it doesn't start in the New Testament. This word comes from the Greek word for children. Uh, this is the unmodified view of our shorter catechism, larger catechism and a confession. And I would encourage you to take it down, look up the scripture references and to study it through. I'd be amazed the many people who tell me <coughs> they do not believe in pedo-baptism, but they've never read chapter 28, they've never looked up the scripture proofs, they've never made an effort to study it for themselves. After, after studying it, you come to the conclusion, no, I don't agree with that, then I respect your opinion. 
I sincerely respect your opinion. The first part of this 95th question in the Shorter Catechism teaches us that baptism is not to be administered to any that are outside the visible church till they profess faith in Christ and obedience to him. So the confession defines the church, of course, as being invisible and visible. What do we mean by that? Well, the Catholic Church really is just the universal church, and it is invisible because you can't see it all at the one time. It consists of the whole number of the elect who have been, who are, and who will be gathered into Christ under the one great head. The visible church, in contrast, consists of all those who throughout the world you can't see that profess the true religion together with their, their children. And this was mirrored in the Old Testament scriptures. Remember I said to you, uh, Peter baptism does not start in Matthew's gospel, it starts way back in the Old Testament scriptures. You had visible Israel, everyone who was an Israelite, and then you had true Israel, everyone who had faith in Christ as the Messiah. So this description and this definition is replicated in our own a book of church order concerning the church. It speaks in chapter 2, section 1, 1, A and B. It tells us about the invisible aspect. It tells us about the visible aspect. And it also says in our own book of church order, uh, the visible church, which is also Catholic, just means universal. It consists of all throughout the world who profess faith in the Lord Jesus for salvation and are subject to his word together with their children. So the covenant children of the visible body of Christ, that's the children of parents who profess faith in Christ, or a parent who professes faith in Christ. Of course, they play an important part in the church. I think every credo-baptist would agree with that. Every pedo-baptist certainly agrees with that. And in on along over the years, we've tried to put a great emphasis upon the children. Children are welcome in the services. Yes, they do make noise from time to time, and parents do get flustered, and all of that there. But we're a family together. We know what children are, uh, and we appreciate all of the efforts that are made by parents to bring their children out. And then we have all of the other special ministries to the children. So we, we believe, and, and I think we put into practice, that we hold children a very dear in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why then do those who believe in pedo-baptism believe that their children ought to be baptised? So I'm going to take time to explain it just a little bit. You remember there's been whole encyclopedias written about this. So to cover it just in one message is nigh impossible. So it's just a very basic overview. Infants of believers in the Old Testament were admitted into visible Israel by circumcision. And so the counterpart of that in the New Testament is baptism. And so, as they are admitted by no other way, other than circumcision or baptism, they have a right to be baptized. And I do not believe, personally, that such membership has ever been set aside. Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Romans chapter 11, verse 17 and 18. Since infants are to be received into the visible church. Remember, we're just talking about the visible professing body. We're not talking about the invisible body. That elect number that only the Holy Spirit by regeneration can put people into. They have to be baptized. That's what the Peter Baptist believes. 
John Calvin, he summarizes the bone of the argument. He said the whole of the subject is the appeal of the Peter Baptists to the Old Testament practice of circumcising male children on the eight days as a sign of the covenant promise made by God to Abraham. And those who hold to this infant baptism, they believe that the right to have their children baptized lies in their belief that baptism is a sign that God has made the covenant not just with them but with their children. Acts chapter 2 verse 39. For the promise, the covenant, is unto you and to your children. Now we could quote all of the great divines, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take you to where we started in Genesis chapter 17, because here we have it in seed form. Remember the covenant that was made here uh, with Abraham? It was a national covenant. It did have temporal aspects. Uh, We're not denying that. But primarily it was a spiritual covenant. Look at verse 7, Genesis 17 and 7. God took the initiative, as God always does. God always takes the initiative in salvation. Adam and Eve ran from God, but God found them out. I will establish my covenant, God says, between me and thee. And then he adds, and thy seed. So the initiative was taken by God, and the covenant included the seed. What did the covenant mean? Well, look at the end of verse 8. I will be their God. You know what's included in that? Included in that is all of the blessings that come to us uh, in that one little phrase, that God is our God. What a blessing to know God is our God. That through the Lord Jesus Christ, he has made us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we know that renewal of his spirit within our heart and within our life. God has taken away the heart of flesh, or the heart of flesh, He has given us the heart of flesh for the heart of stone. God has done a work in our hearts and in our lives. And what was the sign of all of that? Well, this is the nub of the the argument. The sign of that was the indication that they were part of this covenant community was circumcision. Verse 10, every man child among you shall be circumcised. So forth, down to verse 14. I believe there's a spiritual dimension to that. It's wonderful to think that the gospel is linked with that covenant. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. Would you turn there just for a little moment, please? Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 to 9. Now remember I said the covenant that was made with Abraham, Genesis chapter 17, it was temporal, It it was national, we accept all of that, but it was spiritual. And here we have the gospel itself linked with that covenant. Galatians chapter 3. And the scripture for saying that God, verse 8, would justify the heathen through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. Now look at that phrase. Preached before the gospel unto Abraham that's amazing the gospel was preached unto Abraham in covenant form and that gospel covenant of course is still in force God takes the initiative he seeks out of people he brings them to himself 
by the mediator of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're brought into union with him. They're brought into communion with Christ. They're part of his people. So the Peter Baptist argument is, of course, that baptism is the continuation of the covenant of circumcision in the Old Testament. I know there are absolute volumes that have been written against all that I've said. I could not stand in the shadow of those great men who have written them either. But I want to give you both sides of this debate so that you make an informed decision. The Peter Baptist view, I know, is strongly disputed. But we are arguing not from Matthew's Gospel. The argument starts from the Old Testament concept of a literal seed to be circumcised and drawing the, the parallel that the children of Christians are, a little, are, a, are now a literal seed to be baptized. Article 6a has been taken to mean, and I reiterate what I've been saying over the past few weeks, that uh, baptism is optional. You can cherry pick it if you want, but that's not the case. It's a command, brethren and sisters, and it's meant to be obeyed. Article 6a just accommodates both points of view within the one church. If someone as a believer wants to be baptized, that desire will be facilitated. We've had many services of immersion for people who want to be baptized. We trust that in the days ahead there will be others. If someone would like to be baptized locally, because we don't have a baptismal tank here in Annalong, well then pouring or sprinkling can be accommodated in any of our local churches. We don't need to go to a place where they have a baptismal tank or down to the sea either. Equally so, if a parent or parents claiming the covenant promises of God would like that covenant sign to be given to their children, then that ought to be arranged too within the local church and by the local session. History throws us up some very quirky uh, statistics down through the ages. Great men of God are cited for and against baptism. John Bunyan, for example, was a Baptist. Many of you I know have read some of his great works like Pilgrim's Progress. But he had all of his children baptized. Isn't that amazing? And his, his views were controversial in his own day because he did not believe that Christians should separate one from another because of their different views on baptism, whether a credo-baptist or a pedo-baptist. John Gifford, who was instrumental in founding the Baptist church in, Bet, in Bedford, to which uh, Bunyan uh, belonged, he said, Show me the man that's a visible believer, and although he differs with me about baptism, the door of the church shall stand open for him. So whilst recognising the importance of baptism, whilst recognising uh, the, the, the differences over the modes of baptism, even over the subject of baptism, we still believe that our differences are not grounds for division. And in expressing and holding our opinions, uh, as we emphasised at the start, we do so in honour to someone else's opinion. Okay, you see it differently to me, but I honour your opinion and, and I pray that God will bless you. 
Sometimes there are some people within our free church and they find it difficult to accept that somebody has a legitimate scriptural biblical view that's different to theirs. And sometimes the, the, the concept is I respect your opinion as long as it's my opinion. But I hope even in looking at all of these subjects over the past few weeks, credo-baptism, pedo-baptism, at least even if you still see your view as the only view, at least you can give honour and respect to someone else's view. Remember Dr. Meg Barrett, who we're privileged to have here at our opening week of meetings in, in this new meeting house. He wrote a lovely book, it's entitled The Beauty of Holiness. If you can get a copy of it, it's an excellent book, one of his best, I think. And he speaks about the, the sacraments in the following manner. Although neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper is necessary for salvation, neither is optional. You know, I couldn't say to you when we come to the Lord's table here and on along, now if you don't want to stay, you don't have to say, and it's just your choice whether we have this table or not. I, you, know, I would, you know, I would never say that. And so, likewise, Dr. Barrett puts it, the privilege of participation is a duty. And neglecting these divinely ordained ordinances is de facto disobedience. For a Christian not to be baptized or to habitually refrain from coming to the Lord's table is incongruous with what it means to be a Christian. To could we conclude by saying, our open position on baptism, it's not an opt-out. I don't want you to think it's an opt-out. Well, I think there are many free Presbyterians who are of that opinion, but I just want, I can't answer for every pulpit, but I wanted to spell it from this pulpit. Baptism is not an opt-out. And if you're not baptized, there's some, there's some things we can never put right. And I, I lament that in my own life. There's some things that are done and dusted. I can't, I can't unpick them. I can't undo them. But here's one thing you can put right. If you're not baptized, you can put it right. Later in the autumn, we'll start another uh, membership baptismal class. And I would say to you, make sure you come and join us. We'll have it at the same time as the Sunday school. <clears throat> you might say, it doesn't suit me. Well, you know, we'll never get a time to suit everybody, so we just have to call a time. Come and join us. Remember Dr. Barrett's summary. Neglecting baptism is de facto, de facto disobedience. I, I don't want today or any of the, these... Uh, discussions on credo or pedo baptism for you to use it as a hammer over the head to hit somebody else of a different opinion I don't mean it like that whatsoever but please take time before God to consider the, the, the whole subject in the broader context that's why I didn't want it to go up online without the whole context having been given go to our own uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, 1647, or uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. Read down the chapter. Go through the scripture proofs. Look at it as in its context. Look at it in its historical context, because you can't take uh, theology either out of where history has placed it. 
and then come to your conclusions. As we would conclude our own studies on baptism, our final study will be on how to improve your baptism. How would you improve your baptism? Is it just something happened away back there? It's no relevance to where I am today. We'll look at that when we come to it in our next study together.